welcome back. Finally tonight, we're looking back at Ireland's revolutionary decade from a global perspective. I'm joined by Dr. Dara Gannon of Queen's University Belfast, who for many years now has been researching how interactions across national boundaries shaped Ireland's revolution. On the 30th of March, he'll be giving a lecture to the University of Toronto entitled In Search of Global Ireland, Locating the Irish Diaspora in the Decade of Commemorations. And uh, Dara, you're very welcome indeed to the History Show. One of the points that you'll be addressing in that lecture is de Valera's return to Ireland in December 1920 after his 18-month tour of the United States. Just how successful do you think that tour actually was? I think it's an important question to raise. Although de Valera returns in December of 1920 and the centenary of that has already passed, there is a sense of the Irish diaspora almost being a forgotten story in the Irish Revolution once de Valera returns. And it's important to recognise the achievements that he did complete while he was in the States. I think very often the amount of money raised is cited as a major achievement and justifiably so. If you think about $65 million in today's money raised in the cause of the Irish Republic, it's quite unprecedented in Irish nationalist terms. But we also need to think about publicity. And when we think about Ireland during the War of Independence, Dáil Éireann suppressed in September of 1919, the Sinn Féin press suppressed in September of 1919, Devil Éireann's tour of the United States gave Dáil Éireann unprecedented access to the English-speaking world. Not only his tours of major cities such as Boston, New York and Los Angeles, but also I think in terms of contemporary media such as film and radio. Given that we're, we are in Oscar season, as they say, it's important to recognise that De Valera was actually considered a major celebrity at the time. There were offers of up to $50,000 to purchase the rights to make a major po- uh, motion picture film of his life. There was discussions of De Valera appearing in the film as an actor. And uh, those were kind of ideas that were floated at the time. That gives a sense of how successful he was at creating this image of a, a respectable nationalist leader and that again would have transcended the kind of suppression of Dáil Éireann at that time. Now we tend to think of the war of independence almost solely in terms of IRA activities but you know historians are aware that there was a very sophisticated parallel government in place when it came to things like the courts when it came to things like county councils but also one thing that even in that context gets completely or almost completely ignored is the fact that we had a nascent Department of Foreign Affairs, which was already sending a network of emissaries around the world. Talk to us a little bit about that global reach that the Dáil actually had 100 years ago. Very often we think of Ireland's global moment in terms of 1919, in terms of Wilsonianism, the Paris Peace Conference, and thereafter de Valera in the United States in 1920. You could argue that Ireland enjoyed a Western moment in 1919 and 1920. I think by 1921, through the Department of Foreign Affairs, there was very much a global moment experienced. Uh, one example of that is the translation of dollar and documents around the world. For example, the address to foreign parliaments around the world was translated into 15 languages, including uh, Chinese and Japanese. We also have the sending of emissaries around the world, not only into Europe, for example, more in Ivrain in Madrid, we have Nazi Weiss power in Berlin. So women were very prominent internationally, where perhaps they weren't as visible or as um, notable in Dáil Éireann before that. And also in, in parts of the world where you wouldn't expect necessarily Irish representation. So, for instance, Patrick Little was sent to South Africa and we have representatives in Buenos Aires, 
uh, in Brazil and in Chile. So Ireland was very much a global experience in 1921 and reached its peak, I would argue, in the spring and early summer of 1921, not 1919. And it's quite remarkable how the message of Ireland was quite literally, but also metaphorically translated to other nations, um, especially through um, things like the Irish Bulletin. So I found documentation where Benito Mussolini was uh, reading the Irish Bulletin. Uh, I'm not sure how good his English or his Irish was, but the translations helped. Um, but also Saad Zaglul, the Egyptian nationalist leader, in my research I've come across documentation from the National Archives in Kew, in which they're very concerned that the French translations of the Irish Bulletin were being sent directly to Saad Zaglul. So there's a very keen sense in the official mind of British statesmen that this was a global moment for Irish nationalism. Now, of course, Irish diplomatic efforts took many different forms, and one of those comes out in the the battle over Pope Benedict the Fifteenth and efforts by the British Foreign Office to persuade the papacy to denounce the IRA. This was resisted very strongly by two Irish bishops, but Irish bishops who were located many thousands of miles away from Ireland. Very true. And I think it's really important as we kind of grow into this deepening war of independence in Ireland itself that we recognise what you've just outlined, that there was a parallel war ongoing, a diplomatic war for that in Rome as well as elsewhere to save the respectability of the Irish Republic and to ensure that it was in a position to negotiate with the British state at some point in the future. And the example of Rome is very pertinent because certainly from the autumn of 1920, notably in the case of Terence McSweeney's hunger strike, there is an ongoing battle in Rome to try and discredit the Irish Republican movement and the IRA in particular on the part of the British Foreign Office. And this is resisted uh, very strenuously by Irish nationalist leaders in Rome, not necessarily representatives of Dáil Éireann, but whom I have called global influencers, such as Archbishop Patrick Clune of Perth and Archbishop Daniel Mannix of Melbourne. And in those cases, they visited Benedict the Fifteenth in January of, and March of 1921, respectively, and made really key interventions to try and stave off what was almost certainly what would have been a, a disastrous denunciation of the Republican cause by the then Pope. And crucially, in the case of Mannix in March of 1921, Benedict XV was so convinced by Mannix's argument that he asked him to essentially draft a statement on his behalf. And that was published then in May of 1921 in the British press, in which Benedict ostensibly claimed that the violence which was occurring in Ireland was uh, reprehensible, barbaric and needed to end. So this call for a truce in May of 1921 was carefully crafted by nationalist leaders in Rome, but also people who were living outside of Ireland. And I think those Global influencers, those diaspora leaders, um, should be recognised as we progress towards the end of this decade of commemorations. Finally, you you had a series also of Irish race conventions. This is what they were called. Most of them, or a lot of them, seem to have taken place in the USA. But there was a very significant one, an Irish Grace Congress, I think they called it, in, in Paris in January of 1922. Why is that particularly important? I think this idea of the Irish race and the idea of the Irish race convention, those ideas were mobilised by Irish nationalists around the world to give a sense of diasporic unity, to give a sense of diasporic power, especially in the face of the British Empire. So we see Irish race conventions held in New York in 1916, in Philadelphia in 1919, in Melbourne in 1919, and Buenos Aires in 1921. And they all are kind of 
carefully constructed to speak to each other in terms of resolutions, organization, and so on. The Congress in 1921 is essentially the culmination of these global Irish efforts. Catherine Hughes is charged with organizing this event, and she's a remarkable figure in the revolutionary period for the fact that she was such a transnational person. Uh, she was born in New York, but she was raised in Ottawa and Canada. She staffed the Irish National Bureau in Washington, D.C. from 1918, informing major figures in Capitol Hill of the Irish nationalist cause and was then um, supportive of de Valera on his southern tour in 1919 and 1920. And thereafter, she organised the self-determination for Ireland League for Canada and Newfoundland, travelling coast to coast to organise that movement and was charged by de Valera with travelling to Australia and New Zealand in 1921 to organise similar self-determination leagues in those countries. So it's quite remarkable the distance, geographical, but also political and intellectual distance, which Catherine Hughes travelled. And she's very much emblematic of this sense of global Ireland at that time. And the event that she organises was remarkable in scope. 100 delegates arriving in Paris in January of 1922 for the Irish Race Congress from as far away as Java. And uh, this is an attempt to, again, counterweight the impact of the British Empire on the Irish Revolution. And it was actually organised as far back as March 1921 with the idea that any potential negotiations would have the Irish diaspora's influence over them. And this is negated, of course, by the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty on the 6th of December 1921. But I think it's really important as we go forward into this decade of commemorations to remember and to reevaluate the importance of Ireland's global diaspora to the Irish Revolution beyond 1919, beyond 1920, and through the Anglo-Irish Treaty and beyond. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your research with us, Dara. It's fascinating research indeed. It provides an important perspective on the revolutionary years and, and Ireland's global reach, as it were. And your lecture on the subject is taking place over Zoom on the 30th of March. It will be made available thereafter on the Ireland Canada University Foundation's website. That's icuf.ie. And uh, we'll put all of the details on our own website. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show the history show is a pegasus production for rte for now from me miles dungan and producer lorcan clancy goodbye and thanks for listening